On today's episode of the Training Peaks Coachcast, your source for the latest information about the art, science, and business of coaching. Welcome to the Training Peaks Coachcast. I'm your host, Dave Shell, and this week we're coming to you from Kona, Hawaii, leading up to the Ironman World Championship. First, I catch up with Ryan Cooper from Best Bike Split to discuss what kind of impact the weather will have on both the pro and amateur races. Next, I talk to Lance Watson from Life Sport Coaching, who offers a unique perspective as a coach who spent a lot of years on the island preparing his athletes for the challenge. Hope you enjoy. Hi, this is Dave Shell with the Training Peaks Coachcast, and this week we are in Kona, Hawaii, leading up to the Ironman World Championship. I am just catching up with Ryan Cooper of Best Bike Split. So last time we talked, you um, told us a little bit about how the weather conditions for the race um, typically are. We talked about last year how it was more favorable than it usually is. As we get closer to the race and you continue to run models, what are you um, predicting for this year's race? So, so far, uh, we've been here for a couple of days now, and for the first time, it's the weather's been been very very strange for the first time since i've been coming for the last four years we had some pretty big rain showers that came in in the afternoon and the wind has been um i'd say a little more typical than what i've seen you know in the last than what we saw last year um but that being said talking to a bunch of athletes what they've seen is that in some cases um, usually you kind of experience a slight headwind on the way out and then the age groupers will get a bigger even kind of crosswind or, or even a headwind coming back in, and sometimes uh, over the last couple of couple of weeks, that's been flipped. So they've had actually a slight tailwind going out, and then a cross tailwind coming back. That's very very odd. Um, last year, the pro men had a very favorable conditions. Um, by the time the pro women started to come in, it was starting to shift a little bit more to typical, and then the age groupers saw better conditions than normal, but still you know kind of more typical. Um, bigger crosswinds coming uh, back off Javi and then slight headwinds coming back into Kona. So this year, I think that across the board, um, we'll probably see a little bit slower times than last year because the weather conditions will be more typical. Um, And to kind of go through that, um, what ends up happening is you come out of T2 and you start to to get on the Queen K and you get a slight headwind. So it's, you can kind of look at it like there's three separate races. There's the pro men's race, pro women's race, and then the age grouper race. And even though they start only 30 minutes apart between the, the beginning and the, and the end, um, it still can be three completely different weather conditions. So the pro men tend to see very light headwinds on the way out. You'll see the kind of the, the gamesmanship being played. So you have the long line of bikes everybody's kind of waiting for somebody to make a move and then as they get up to javi they start to get some of the crosswinds and then at javi they'll get these really strong headwinds and what ends up happening is wind coming out of the northeast on one side of javi it wraps around and so you get this real big headwind on the other side it kind of wraps and gets funneled through two mountain ranges um, and that's where those famous crosswinds come from when you start to, to descend back um, on the way back. So on the women's side, there's not as much tactics being played. So you tend to have a little bit more spread out um, when you get out of the, the water. And so it's, it's more of um, kind of everybody for themselves. You'll see some people that will try and ride in groups of two or three, but you won't see that big, long group of 
you know, 10 to 15 riders that you see on the men's side. And so because the weather is such a factor here at Kona, you have um, put something on Best Bike Split to account for that. Is that correct? Originally, when we when we set up Best Bike Split, we only had a single weather data pool. So it was like, oh, pull weather. And it would just pick a central point, and you can select a time, and it would pull the weather. And what we realized quickly was that that wasn't adequate for almost any course. So we added what we called advanced weather, which pulls multiple weather points from stations up and down the course for the time that we think that you're going to be be in that area. So it kind of forecasts if you get out of the water, let's say at 8 o'clock, and get on your bike, then the first weather station may be at 8.05, and it's a couple miles up the road. Then the next weather pool may be 30 minutes later, and we assume you're going to be somewhere like 20 miles or so up the course. So it kind of pulls the forecasted weather for the stations up and down the course. Um, we thought that, we rolled that out at Kona a couple of years ago, and we still realize that it's because the weather here in Kona is so, so there's so many microclimates and so much happening that even that wasn't adequate to, to get a very good um, kind of wind map. Um, so for this year, we created what we call course-specific weather. And so if you are modeling the race using the 2018 Kona course, that's the verified Kona course, we have a third weather option, which is Kona weather, which we're actually pulling from a separate site and we're updating it um, kind of as we approach. So you can go on and pull that new updated weather the closer we get to the to the race. And it's something that we'll feature for large races like Kona or like world championship events, et cetera, um, where we want to make sure that the weather data is as accurate as possible. And for a coach that has an athlete racing, they'll still want to continue to run the model up until the race just to get the most accurate model possible. Correct. So we're looking at this um, multiple times a day and making sure that as we get closer and the forecasts kind of come in and get a little more solidified, that we'll update that weather data. And then as a coach, you can pull that in and uh, rerun the model based on the latest. So almost up until right up until race morning. Okay. So based on the current weather conditions you're seeing, what do you anticipate for the women's race? So on the women's race, um, times I think will be similar to last year, maybe a little bit slower, but we're talking like one to two minutes difference for the same kind of power. Um, and mostly that's because last year the really ideal weather conditions were kind of saved for those first four or five male athletes, the pro athletes. The men get a little bit of a head start at the gun and just that little head start saved them some of the worse weather conditions later on. Um, so we think that on the women's side, somebody like Daniela Reef, who last year had what we would consider maybe even a little off day. Um, she wrote a, I believe a 450, low 450s, 451, 452. She's definitely capable of, of running sub that she didn't have to on the day. Um, but we think she'd probably be in the same range, low 450, even a little bit sub that, um, somebody like a Sarah Crawley or a Lucy Charles that did a high 450, 458, 457. We kind of expect them to be in that similar range. Um, other athletes that were in that range, we kind of uh, think it'll be more typical of a normal year. So um, athletes that were maybe at a 458 last year, you could expect it right at five hours, a little over five hours. So uh, Miranda Carfrey's back this year, and um, she's typically a 505 type of, of, of time on the bike. And so we think that she will probably be similar to that this year. She'll have some work to do when she gets off the bike to try and run people down. And how about the men's race? The men's race this year is uh, is interesting. Last year, obviously, three 
three strong riders all broke the previous course record. So Cameron Wharf uh, with a 412 just uh, obliterated it. Um, and then Lionel Sanders came in a couple minutes later and Sebastian Keenley as well. And so you have these these really strong cyclists. And this year, all of those those riders are back. All those athletes are here. Um, and then with the addition of Starkey, who um, we know wants to make a statement on the bike, you know, he he probably knows in the back of his head he's not going to win the win the race, but he wants to make a statement and, and maybe go for the bike record. Um, so he, he could be shooting for a four ten kind of time, and to do that with the weather conditions that are present here, he's going to need um, at least three hundred and thirty watts. Last year, Cameron Wharf uh, posted that he rode three ten um, average, not normalized, and. In those conditions this year, that would equate to about a 414, 415, 416. So, you know, four minutes to five minutes difference of what he what he raced last year. Uh, similarly, Lionel Sanders uh, averaged around 300 watts last year. And if he was to do that same kind of power range, um, he'd be looking at another three or four minutes loss if the conditions were, were more typical. That being said, those strong cyclists, working together, trying to bridge the gap to the strong swimmers, making a pass. Um, they probably, like Cameron Wharf did last year, wouldn't really want to put a hard effort or a pass in until the turnaround at Javi. What we saw from somebody like Josh Amberger last year, he was easily the first out of the water. He probably will be again this year. And he wanted to make a statement on the bike. He's a strong swim cyclist. So he got on the bike, and we saw his power data, and he was pushing 300, 300 to 310 watts up to Javi, and he wasn't pulling away from anybody, and he was just dragging everybody else with him. And so there is a bit of a, uh, an advantage if there's a headwind, um, a draft advantage, and even at the legal spacing, you could look at a um, eight, 8%, uh, 6 to 8% power advantage if there's a headwind. So um, you, know, you can look at it and see somebody really – pushing hard on the front and you see a lot of other people that are maybe even having to soft pedal a bit that are that are behind them right and and that's significant eight percent savings and energy is um can make a lot of difference when it comes to the runs especially at the power level that those guys are riding at so if you think about 300 watts and you think about you know 10 percent of that uh 30 watts so you're looking at you know somewhere 24 plus watts of savings sitting behind so um somebody that normally would be in the red trying to keep up is now sitting in and not having any problems at all so um, last year Patrick Lange who ended up winning um, got the benefit of that so he's a strong swimmer came out in the lead pack um, set in on the bike didn't put his nose out in the front if he didn't need to and rode significantly faster than he did the year before so you can kind of think of it the strong cyclist actually should be hoping for worse weather um, they'd want bigger crosswinds to break those groups up uh, and they know the watts that they push is going to equal a bigger time gap than somebody like a Patrick Langate could. So if he was only, I believe he did a 422 bike last year, or maybe even, it may have been, oh, sorry, it was a 428 bike last year. So he had a huge disadvantage coming off. But if there was worse weather conditions, there could have been another three or four minutes in Lyle Sanders um, was only second by a couple of minutes. So you look at it, and, and it comes down to just those little things. Um, so if the weather conditions is more typical, they may not have broken the bike record, but Sanders may have won the overall race. So, so using the new Kona weather model and best bike split, Ryan predicts that this year's race won't be nearly as favorable as last year. We'll have to wait and see if that holds up. 
Next, let's check in with Lance Watson from Life Sport Coaching to see what tips he has for you for the crucial weeks leading up to the World Championship. All right, I am here with Lance Watson, head coach of Life Sport Coaching and a Hall of Fame coach um, elected to the Triathlon Canada Hall of Fame in 2015, I believe. Lance, thanks for joining us today. Happy to join you. Thanks for having me. Before we get into it, can you just tell our listeners a little bit about yourself in your own words? Well, sure. Um, Let's see. I've been uh, triathlon coaching for over 30 years now. And in fact, when I started triathlon coaching, I don't think there were many triathlon coaches around. Um, The uh, first 15 years or so of my career was uh, dedicated uh, solely towards high-performance triathlon. And uh, I went on to build uh, Canada's National Triathlon Center, I coached at four Olympic Games, coached an Olympic gold medal. Um, along the way, uh, managed to work with a couple of great Ironman athletes, um, Lisa Bentley, Peter Reed. So had some great experiences there and took my love of learning and sharing knowledge and educating coaches into my personal business of life sport in uh, 2004. And uh, we're now a network of coaches across North America. And we coach athletes in over 40 countries around the world. And so we are in Kona, Hawaii right now. Um, In just a few days, we're going to have the Ironman World Championship. Um, We've been doing, we interviewed some other coaches, um, Simon Ward, who's from the triathloncoach.com in UK. Ryan Cooper from Best Bike Split talking about some of the conditions for this race. And I really wanted to talk to you because I've been to Kona, I think, four times now. And um, you always have the house here with your coaches. And so I think it's a really unique experience. And how long have you been having this house and bringing the coaches here to support your athletes that are racing? Well, I've had a presence uh, here with Life Sports since I founded the company in, in 2004. And in fact, we spent three years as the official coaches of Ironman worldwide and we've done all kinds of great and awesome things with uh, athletes of you know all ages all trying to win world championships or experience their first Kona but I've been coming here consistently uh, since I think 1996 every single year so it's it's a lot of years here Um, a lot of great memories a lot of great stories you know training athletes out on the Queen K and out by Javi you know the week before um, sometimes teaching them things that you save their race in the last couple of days before the race or, uh, you know, yeah, just wonderful memories here, a lot of history. Yeah, and that, that's one of the big reasons I wanted to talk to you. I imagine that you do have so much experience and have um, learned so many things having the athletes come out here and being able to help them on their journey um, sure. to the World Championship. And so what are some of the things... Um, leading up to the race most people they're coming out a week early if not Mm. two weeks early so what are some of the things you're telling the athletes during these last couple of weeks to not only prepare them for the race but maybe prevent them from throwing their race away (laughs) well you know it's uh it's a pretty mixed bag dave because um you've got a variety of athletes that are coming out here i mean they're all good athletes um I guess a few have come in through the legacy program, et cetera, which means they've done a number of Ironman, so they do have experience. Maybe they just don't have the same genetics as uh, some of the exceptional athletes that qualify. Uh, so you, you may have an athlete coming out for the first time, and um, they may have qualified unexpectedly. And, um, you know, you may even know based on their skill set that this might be their only crack at it. And with an athlete like that, it's, it's really calming nerves trying to um 
you know, encourage them to smell the roses and enjoy the environment a little bit because the week leading in can be a real blur for them. You know, it's like, I mean, even if you go running up and down a Lee drive here, it's, you know, it's, it's genetic specimens of every age group moving exceptionally well and, and efficiently. So alternately, you might have some experienced athletes who are on the island and they've raced here multiple times. And, um, this is truly one of the races where experience on the course matters. Um, you learn all the, the finer points. Uh, the climate and the conditions can change here so much each year that it can almost feel like a different course from year to year. So you're trying to educate these experienced athletes basically how to adapt to different situations and dynamics within the race in a much more competitive and deep field than they would experience you know where they went and qualified and they might have dominated or you know been at the pointy end of the the field as opposed to you know in this case they might be in the middle of the bell curve so it it might be a race with more surging and people passing and you know avoiding packs even or or that kind of thing so you're working on their mental game you're trying to segment the course down into finer points Um, you're trying to anticipate um, where they might utilize their strengths, where they might have to try and economize or um, get through a tough section as well. And then you also might be um, you know, breaking down into some of the finer points about uh, how you, uh, you know, manage your nutrition and pacing on this course specifically within this field. Right. You bring up a really good point. We do results here every year, and I know the first year that I did it I was really amazed I'd have some guys coming up to me and they did sub nine hours and that was good for 10th or 15th in their age group you know and so like you said it might I don't know if devastating is the right word but you were leading in one race and now you're with the best in the world this truly is the best in the world doing this race and so how do you prepare athletes for that um well I think you try and get them excited about it um you know I was actually talking with an athlete from Norway today um, who's a darn good athlete and uh, you know it's I was saying if you ever had the opportunity to go out and train with a bunch of guys who are kind of you know around your skill set and at your level that would be a pretty awesome experience right because usually he's out there solo at the front and just pacing himself and so you can get inspiration um, you can get uh, energy from having people around you it can help keep you on task for sure Um, because it becomes a little bit more like racing but um, on the flip side you have to be really careful not to deviate from what what has made you successful as an Ironman athlete because um, you're taking a lot of unusual or exceptional risks out there or um, you know maybe uh, letting ego get in the way of common sense too what would be your advice to an athlete when you know as you're setting them up for this and and you're telling them that you are going to be out there with people that are as fast if not faster than you what are some of those guidelines that you might be telling them either on the bike or on the swim as Mm. far as pacing and kind of staying within the plan well sure um First of all, uh, it's interesting with the swim because if you are an age group athlete and you swim 52 or 53 minutes for your Ironman swim split, you might be swimming by yourself <laughs> or you might be swimming with one or two people. Whereas in this race, you're going to be in a group, um, you're going to be with other competitive athletes, there might be more contact, but there also might be more opportunities to draft. So that's just one small you know, element to consider as um, an athlete coming into a, a deeper field. Um, I I think the other thing is um, trying to make sure that they're aware that 
this is still an endurance and an ultra endurance event and when you tend to ride in and around groups of cyclists it can turn into 112 miles or 180 kilometers of bike intervals <laughs> versus um you know trying to get the the most flat line power meter <laughs> you know output or um, heart rate output as as you possibly can on the day and you know it's by by even pacing your in theory you should go faster but the uh, the other ingredients of having having other faster athletes around you and being able to you know use them for speed um, can benefit your your race as well and so on this course are there certain areas where you think it's worth it to take some calculated risk um, for those athletes that are maybe hunting for a podium spot yes for sure um, you know if you're a strong cyclist and a decent swimmer um, trying to break away from the masses early you know can it's a risky game to go too hard too soon but um, it's also one of those courses where you can sort of disappear down the road a little bit Um, wind conditions can change throughout the day too there's been years where athletes have actually have been able to beat a wind change and and get an advantage um, on this course whenever there's a technical area um Sometimes it's actually faster to be riding alone than in amongst a group because a group can sort of, you know, jam you up or you're, you know, you're feathering brakes to stay out of a draft zone or that kind of thing. So, you know, if you're, um, if you know your numbers and you're confident in um, kind of getting your, your nose out in the wind and just holding a rhythm, then um, sometimes sneaking away, you know. And then it's also just knowing what your strengths are too. So if you've got an athlete who's, um, you know, has it just that big, aerobic engine and you know it's the Duracell bunny um kind of biding your time until you come back down you know out of heavy and making sure that you have really good legs for the last uh you know 30 or 40 miles from Kauai High back back into town yeah I mean you can make huge strides on the field on that um, part of the bike and then um, the same with the run as well. I mean, if you're ever up on the uh, Queen K Highway in the last 10K, it's, I mean, it's carnage. And athletes can easily move up um, 10 minutes or a dozen spots in their age group in the last 10K because, um, you know, as anybody who's ever done an Ironman knows, uh, once the legs go, they really go. Right, yeah. And so aside from um, the actual course, you talked about the conditions at this race, and the wind is definitely a consideration. The heat I, this week it's super humid; um, it's rained several times. So, do you take any precautions there? Um, is are athletes changing their nutrition or um, handling those things any differently than they might in a cooler race? For sure, uh, a lot of how you deal with the climate here has to do with what you do in preparation for dealing with the climate here. So. We do, uh, you know, pre-acclimation for athletes before they get here and, you know, specific indoor training protocols. Um, we do a lot of uh, logging and monitoring of sweat rate and, and um, um, in some ca- cases, simplifying their nutritional protocol initially and then gradually adding items to see what works and what their maximum intake and capacity is at certain temperatures, at certain outputs or heart rates. Because, you know, ultimately just from the nutrition perspective you want to be a little bit of a a rolling chemist or scientist out there and being able to adapt to what the day brings you you know so if you are you know if you're riding um 
draft legal and clean, but there's 15 guys up ahead of you and you're sitting back off that group, your heart rate's still going to be a little bit lower and you may have an opportunity to actually ingest and process more calories. Well, some of these, you know, super athletes who haven't had that experience before, you know, may not have had that opportunity to see how that works. So, so I think the, uh, the short answer is, um, you know, uh, preparation for the heat at home, um, recognizing that you're going to be racing at a higher heart rate, uh, in this climate than you would in a, in a cooler climate. Um, there is an inverse relationship between heart rate and your ability to ingest and process calories. Um, you need to know, um, what kind of, um, salt loss you have, you know, at least generally as an athlete, whether you're salty sweater or not, and being able to adapt to that as well. And, um, and I also find that, uh, in this climate that, um, and on this course, uh, if you're able to eat more frequently in smaller amounts, um, it seems to process a little bit better. Sometimes athletes need to go to a slightly lower, uh, calorie intake in hot, hotter climates too, which okay. also will impact their pacing strategy because they're going to have to rely more on fat. I don't know if the lead's the right word, but kind of at the pointy end of the spear there with the um, age group athletes, do, how does that differ from maybe Brent's preparation um, for the race? Is that the same kind of strategy or is that pro race playing out a little bit differently? I would say that the pro race um, is even more dynamic in some ways. The men's pro race particularly is more dynamic than um, the age group race and that because it's a world championships and this is how these guys make their livings and make their name and build their personal brand or whatever, you'll see more athletes taking exceptional risks and you'll see um, a lot of guys and women who override the course uh, trying to get away or or win and... uh, you know, I think um, there's probably you know, 15 athletes in the men or women's race who could potentially finish top five or top three. So it, it creates an interesting dynamic out there. It's, uh, it's not um, your typical pro race where there might be, you know, three sort of A-level guys and a number of sort of A-minus and B-plus guys, and, and they all kind of work off each other a little bit competitively, but a lot of it is more just what's my personal, you know, plan or pacing strategy. Yeah. And now going to the other side of that with the athletes where maybe it's a legacy spot or yeah. they didn't expect to qualify and so it is their first year here. How does how does that change as far as the week leading up to it? Um are you being as adamant about the protocol and things like that or is it really yeah. more about the experience? Um well it's protocol and experience and um you know, I often like to talk to athletes, uh, you know, sometimes learning about triathlon is kind of like going to school, you know, and are you doing your bachelor's degree? Are you doing your master's degree? Are you doing your PhD? And as a coach, that will drive the kind of things that you will talk to an athlete about leading into their race. And, you know, you don't want to go into, um, you know, the, the finer points of competitiveness or tactics with somebody who is fairly new to the race um you're going to be sticking with basics like you know how much are you going to drink when (laughs) at what point and so with your legacy athlete like i said earlier often they're an experienced athlete um, but they're going to be out there longer and um, it might be their only time here so there's there's a way heavier emphasis on you know enjoying the day and pacing it through and making sure you're safe and 
and um, not being so concerned about uh, what the outcome is going to be. Kind of along those same lines, there's so much going on here. There seems to be a party every night or even in the afternoon. There's just always something going on between interviews and um, some sponsor giving away something. How do you address that with athletes um, as far as maybe not spending all their time in the sun <laughs> standing up in the expo? Come here one year when you're not racing yeah. <laughs> and enjoy the week <laughs> because there, it, is, it is a really fun environment. It's, you know, it's, it's a little off topic, but coming here as a sport tourist and getting to be uh, immersed in the vibe and seeing all the athletes prepare but not having the pressure to race is, is a lot of fun. And um, beyond that, you know, if you have athletes who are going to race, then you have to put it on the scale of, you know, is this life experience or competitive experience for this athlete? And they're both valid reasons for being here. You know, if this is your one time here and you've been dreaming about coming here, you still have to make sure that you're organized to and prepared to tackle this immense challenge that's in front of you at the end of the week. You can't lose sight of that, you know, so you do have to make sure you're resting and you're hydrating and you're fueling and you're doing your preparation sessions and you're organized with all your equipment and everything's ready to go because you don't want to have something goofy that you know throws you off track or doesn't allow you to finish or or it's just like a long miserable day out there um uh, you know alternately you know you got your high performance athlete um they're often here on a mission so then you're you're just going to talk to them about here's what it takes to have success in Hawaii and it means you know staying away from the expo and and uh you know reading a book <laughs> putting your feet up um being aware of extra external stresses uh, maybe expectations you're putting on yourself or from you know your spouse or your family or or that kind of thing and um and really uh trying to be disciplined about their mental preparation going in as well and trying to be somewhat structured about it as opposed to uh you know, just sort of generally thinking about how it might go. You know, and I wanted to ask you about that because you just mentioned about the external stress and, and those expectations and things like that. And so how do you manage that with an athlete? And it sounds like you are working on the mental aspect of it. For sure, for sure. It's the old cliche. It's 95% mental, right? That's the old cliche, It's which isn't true. I mean, there's a huge physical component, of course. Um, but a lot of it is um, trying to give them a realistic visual of what the environment's going to be like that they're going into before they even get here talking to them about some of the fun stuff but um you know some of the things that can throw them off course or off track a little bit as well and then also talking to them about their um friends and support network as well and coming up to an idea with the athlete about what helps them have success and what causes them to have stress and then encouraging them to communicate that to the people around them in a constructive way before they get there so that you know your husband or wife knows that they're not going to ask you how you're feeling 27 times a day <laughs> you know or I'm really worried about you or you know all those kind of things that kind of you know you can plant a seed and they grow a little bit in your uh, mind throughout the week. I have to imagine that at any race it's important to have a support crew and to have your family behind you um I would imagine at this race that it's extremely important because there is so much going on. And so to actually have people that can, if you are, if you have a flat tire or something like that, that you can go back to the room, they'll go take care of it for you or something like that. How many athletes do you guys have here this year? Do you know? Off the uh, top 17 of your head? athletes uh, this year that we 
coach one-on-one, uh, -on -one, and then we've got um, dozens that train with us through programs across North America as well. So lots of people to cheer for. Yeah, that's great. And so do those athletes, how many family members do they typically bring with them? One to five. <laughs> and that's what <laughs> and it seems like. And it's often, like. The, you know, the ones that come back year after year, um, they might come with their partner, you know, or their, their mom or, or something like that. And, and then the people that are here for the first time, you know, it's sometimes it's, you know, family reunion, you know, so a lot of variables too, you know, as far as uh, trying to encourage them not to feel like they need to take care of everybody because they're trying to take care of themselves. But, yeah, but I, I think your that. point is uh, having a triathlon Sherpa is what you're getting <laughs> yeah, at. Yeah. yeah. And it's, it's yeah. kind of been amazing to me. I mean, we have a booth at the expo and, and, it seems to be about that, like one to four, where you've got the racer and then their entire family is the walking with yeah. them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it's, but it's fantastic. And yeah, um, just to really go back nice. to what you said a little while ago about come back another year um, to watch or spectate and support. And I think this is probably one of those races that that would be such an experience. Or, or if you're aspiring to get to Kona someday to like come watch the midnight finish. And if if that doesn't inspire you, you're dead inside, I think. <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, this this race is really is, um, you know, it's the Super Bowl of our sport. I mean, it's it's amazing to see uh, the professional athletes, and it's, it's super inspirational to see um, all the athletes out there tackling, you know, a really tough course. And, um, you know, the other thing I think, uh, you, you talk to a lot of pro athletes, and a lot of them would have come out before they ever raced it to come and just observe and learn too and you, know, you do see a lot of things on the ground that you wouldn't see in a, a broadcast uh, you know it might just be someone gutting it out at mile 20 in the heat or you know seeing how a pro manages an aid station firsthand you know at at full speed and getting all the fluid they need and so all those little finer points that uh yeah it's good learning and it's it's pretty inspirational it's great motivation to bring back to your training too and it's just a lot of fun uh, absolutely i've um I personally have sworn off Ironman, and that then every time I come back here and I watch that finish, I think I might do one more. <laughs> yes. So, one, do you have, and maybe this is too general, but do you have, like, your go-to kind of taper protocol for your athletes, and does it differ between those more high-performance athletes and the experienced athletes, or is it just adjusted for those athletes? Yeah, um, that's a great question. Um, I have two go-to tapers. <laughs> um, I, I found that um, some athletes rest really well. And um, if you give them a lot of rest going into the event, they freshen up and they move well. And then I find other athletes, you need to rest them earlier and then gradually build them into the race because, um, you know, they tend to be a little bit crusty or rusty if they've taken time off. And you know, an easy way um, for a developing coach to identify that is just to look at how an athlete performs after a rest week uh, in their training and, their, you know, when they're in a higher volume phase. You know, if they come out, you know, on Monday and Tuesday after a week off and they're on fire, then, uh, you know, that's probably an athlete that rests well. And if, you know, they're feeling terrible for three or four days and then the following weekend they start to get going and then they're starting to stack workouts, then, you know, that's probably an athlete that you need to activate a little bit more before a race okay that's a great tip so the final question i have for you before i let you go is what is your top like one to three tips for a coach um maybe it's their first athlete racing kona or they're trying to get an athlete to kona what advice would you have for them that's a good question um i would say definitely reach out to uh other coaches who've been there before and um 
beg, borrow, or steal as many ideas as you possibly can from them. Um, pick their brains. Uh, I know me personally, coaching is like, um, it feels like there's a lot of camaraderie out there and there's a lot of colleagues and uh, I really enjoy sharing my experiences and ideas. Um, there's a ton of information on the internet, of course, on the web. Um, you can read uh, several blogs or stories or articles and, and um, you can easily put together a pretty good game plan just uh, based off of that as well. And and then, um, you know, I think having good heart-to-heart with your athlete as well and asking them what, what do they hope to get out of the experience, you know, because ultimately it's their journey, it's not yours, right? Uh, you're just helping guide them to get out of the sport what they hope to get out of it. So, you know, do they want to enjoy the day do they hope to win are their goals realistic <laughs> you know those kind of conversations right awesome well thank you very much that's um i really appreciate your time and i especially i know you that you've helped so many coaches um so for you to pass on your knowledge is much appreciated and um thanks well it's been my pleasure joining you and um keep up the good work at training peaks right. thanks lance we hope you've enjoyed our talk with ryan cooper and lance watson To find out where to follow Lance and a list of the resources mentioned in this episode, check out the Training Peaks blog. If you're enjoying the Training Peaks Coachcast, please be sure to subscribe and share, and let us know what else you would like to hear about by leaving reviews or tweeting to us at at Training Peaks. Until next time.